Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are working our way through Ephesians. We're midway through or at the end of Ephesians chapter 4 today, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. We're actually going to creep into chapter 5, just a few verses. And so uh, as, you're, as you're getting that, let me just mention a couple things. Number one, um, Will just mentioned, if you're newer here, that they're going to be shooting, they're going to be launching potatoes. He really actually means that. They have, he and Will and his childhood friend, Jonathan Keller, who's also a part of this church, have built this potato launcher that's a, I mean, it's about eight feet PVC pipe with a little fuse on the end, and, and they really do shoot potatoes like hundreds of yards in the air, and it is really entertaining, especially, especially if you're a middle school kid or a high schooler. It's just awesome. Just, you can't get enough of it. You just watch it. Um, so, um, yeah, so uh, consider whether or not you want your kids to be here or not. Um, and also, as you're, as, you're, um, as you're finding Ephesians 4, um, let me just mention, as we mentioned, we have um, uh, babies. There was one that was born, I guess, last night or today, Rooster and Lacey, Almond, and a few, many more on the way. I want to let you know about a slight change in the way that we are going to be doing baby dedications here at Crosspoint. From the beginning of our... Uh, our beginning as a church, which we've been a church now for almost seven years, uh, we have um, had this very important sort of practice or tradition of dedicating children to the Lord. Um, it's not something that is really uh, explicitly commanded in Scripture, but I think it's a very healthy practice for churches to do, where we come around as a church family, and really we call it a child dedication, but really it's more of a, of a family, a parent and, and church family dedication. And in the past, up to this point, we've done individual baby dedications, but we've just grown so much, and we have so many babies coming um, that really, uh, especially last year, we, we were just doing a lot of baby dedications, which is a wonderful thing, but we thought it might be a, a little wiser for us to do group baby dedications, and so we're going to have several Sundays throughout the year where we where families come together and we will do uh, dedications as a group, whether that's three families that are, have babies at that time, or whether it's five, or whether it's ten. Uh, we're we're going to combine them together as groups. Now, uh, a- as you know, one of the m- really important things in our baby dedications is a time of specific prayer for each individual child. And so that's not going to go away. I-, I anticipate that our baby dedication Sundays will take a little bit longer, and that's okay. If we have 10, if we just happen to have 10 babies that are, or young children that are ready to be dedica- dedicated that time frame or quarter, then um, we're, we're going to devote a good amount of time to praying for that child. Because think about it, how often in your life do you have hundreds of people praying for you right then? And we don't want that to go away. The other thing that we want to do with these baby dedications is not make them just kind of a singular event where... It becomes almost kind of a Sunday morning tradition and ritual, as, as beautiful and important as that is. But we also want to help come alongside parents. And so as part of the baby dedication process, we think it's important that people either be members or tracking towards membership, because after all, this is a sort of family dedication. And also, as part of that, we're going to offer a baby uh, or a parenting class to help kind of uh, 
come alongside the parents to equip them with, with resources for parenting, resources for raising children in the Lord. And so if you are uh, going to dedicate a child here in the near future, look forward to that parenting class that we'll do kind of the Sunday or two before. Um, and it'll be a real time of just kind of resourcing and enriching uh, and helping parents along the way so that it's more than just a sort of uh, event. It, it's really something that is uh, really a, uh, an equipping time for, for parents. And so look forward to that. I think we're going to do our first one. We played around with the calendar a little bit. I think the first sort of kind of group baby dedication is going to be the end of April, I think, off the top of my head. But you'll be hearing more about that. So um, I, I appreciate you guys um, understanding that, that change and realizing that for some of us, it started out when Crosspoint was 50, 60 people, and it had a real kind of cozy feel, and we were in the schoolhouse in those wooden chairs. Remember those things that were built for third graders, and most of us aren't in the third grade. We've gotten a little bit bigger since we were in the third grade, and I realize that many that have been around for a while, um, you know, as a church grows, it's kind of like turbulence when you're flying, you know? You, you, the plane shakes a little bit, and you kind of wonder, what is it, what's going on up there? You know, what's going on? And um, and I assure you that we're just, uh, as, as leaders of the church, trying to shepherd and be good stewards of what the Lord has and is doing among us um, and to grow in healthy and wise ways. So, all right, well, let's get into it. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we are today, and, um, and here's what we're going to do today. We're going to work through uh, a kind of a continuation of thought from where we were last week, remember we, we, we transitioned into some sort of specific admonitions that Paul has on what the new life in Christ should look like. In fact, he says, I insist that you you'd no longer live like the Gentiles do, that you live in this new way. And so we looked at how really before we can even think about that, we need to ground this in the gospel. And so we're going to read through uh, Ephesians 4, verse 25, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 2. And the reason we're doing that is, you know, the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible were not originally put in there by the Bible writers, like in this case, Paul. They were put in there by English translators of the Bible you know, about four or 500 years ago. And a vast majority of the time, they did a really, really good job with those breaks. But a few times, maybe they got just a couple verses off, and this is one of those instances. And so we're going to, the line of Paul's thinking goes into chapter 5 and verse 2. And so, so here's what we're going to do today. We're just going to work our way through this kind of verse by verse. And a lot of it is almost kind of like New Testament Proverbs, like don't do this and do this. Remember how last week we talked about there's behaviors that in Christ, when we understand that Christ has made us alive, that he has, he has taken our sin and given us his new life and his righteousness, that now not as individuals trying to live up to some standard, but because Jesus has died for us and given us his life, now we have the ability to put off certain behaviors and to put on certain behaviors. And now Paul's going to get into much more of a sort of nitty-gritty listing of what that might look like. So there's, there's three things I want us to think about before I start reading. One is, when we read a, a text or passage like we're going to read today, we really need to be careful that we do not blur sanctification with justification. And what do I mean by that? There's two different sort of theological concepts. Sanctification is what Christians are called to do after they have already been made right with God by Jesus' work on the cross and our efforts now, along with the Holy Spirit, to live in increasing conformity 
to God's will growing in Christ's likeness. That's sanctification, and that comes as a result of the fact that we have been made alive, filled with God's Holy Spirit, given Jesus' righteousness, given His Word, given community, and are now empowered for this progressive walk of growing in Christ. Whereas justification is a one-time act that we don't have anything to do with. Jesus, just, God justifies us because of what Christ did, not because of what we have done. And see, what happens when you blur these two things, when you, if you're a Christian and you start sort of thinking that your obedience now after your salvation to what the Bible commands us to do is sort of what sort of continues to make you right with God. What you're doing is you're reducing salvation down to sort of your efforts. You get that? You see that? And all of a sudden, this thing that you had nothing to do with because you were dead and God made you alive in Christ, now it kind of becomes a sort of self-centered effort. And, and you can really sort of mix up the Christian faith when we blur justification and sanctification. So justification is a one-time act whereby God makes us alive, makes us right with him through Jesus' work on the cross. And now sanctification is the rest of the Christian life, okay? So we don't judge ourselves and our standing by, with God by whether or not we've had a good week or whether or not we're, we're doing right. We remember that our right standing with God is always because of what Christ has done for us. And from that now, from that we now can live this life of sanctification. So we can't blur those things. It's really important. Um, incidentally, that's the reason why it's really dangerous to, well, I shouldn't say that. Let me retract that, strike that from the record. It's we should be cautious when we read like one-line devotionals, you know, devotionals that will pick out uh, one verse. Because what you're doing is so, a lot of times in those one-verse devotionals, you're sort of parachuting down into one text and that can be really easy to take that text and say, oh, I've got to do that, and that's what makes me right with God. You see that? But, but what we're doing here in Ephesians 4 is we're building on everything that we've read in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, where it says that we're made right with God by Christ, not by our efforts. Um, and I realize that one of my heroes, Spurgeon, all he did was write little one-line devotionals. So I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just, just saying um, and so, so just remember that. Let's not blur sanctification and justification. The second thing, just a little caution. Realize that we tend to read through the Bible kind of through a personal, individualistic default. Certainly at times that's appropriate, like when it comes to our individual repentance and faith that is necessary. But when it comes to living the Christian life, sanctification, we need to realize that the Bible is primarily written to a people who are in community together. And so these verses, the context of these verses that we're going to read today are the context of a local church trying to do life together. All right, okay, so let's go. Let's read in verse 25. And then before I do that, I'm going to pray, and, um, and let's get started. And Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Lord, you are a good and gracious Father. And it is your desire to give gifts to your children. This room is full of your children, and I pray that you would give your gift of wisdom and sanctification and increasing Christ's likeness to us. I'm certain also, Lord, that there are people in this room who are not yet your children. They are not yet trusting in Christ for their justification. Maybe they realize that and 
they're giving this a try. Or maybe they, they think they're Christians, but, but really they've never been born again. Their heart's never been changed. They've misunderstood the message of Christianity as a sort of self-improvement. Lord, for those friends in here today, would you, would you cause the scales to fall from their eyes? And would you let them see that our only hope is in Christ? That the message of Christianity is not morality on how to live, but it is the gloriously good news of the grace of Jesus and how he died to make us right and rose again in victory over our sin to be our gracious God and King. Lord, would you do these things now for us as we give ourselves to your word and would you help us as a community grow so that we might be a better display of your gospel in this city so that others would be drawn to trust in Jesus even through the witness of this local church and how we live together. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's read verse 25. And as I read, you're going to notice as we kind of go through this verse by verse that Paul will start with a sort of negative ad- admonition, like the things that we need to put off. Then most of the sentences will be followed. The, the, midway through the sentence, it'll be a sort of positive thing. Don't do this, do this. And then there will be a sort of theological reason behind that. So let's start in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the first thing that Paul starts off here is a more specific look at what it looks like to put on Christ and to put off the old self, is that we should be a community that's just sort of marked by truth speaking. And to do that, we have to put off falsehood. I think this is more, certainly it includes it, but it's more than just not lying. It's it's a sort of sense that we are deeply interconnected as people. And really, we all have blind spots. Like, we, we, none of us have 20-20 spiritual vision. And we all need each other as part of the community of God's people, especially in the context of a local church, to speak truth to one another, to give one another perspective, right? I mean, we need, to, th- there is enough lie, there's enough falsehood in the world that w- when it's in the church, I mean, it's, it's you know what I thought about is th- th- last night as I was just thinking through this again, I thought about, you know, there's, I don't know, I've seen this somewhere. I don't even know if this is true or not, but I'll just throw it out there. You know, have you ever heard of those certain sort of diseases or whatever where maybe a person's white blood cells um, sort of mistake the good tissue for bad tissue and the, the white blood cells start attacking your own body? Is that even a medical possibility, babe? I don't even know if it is. <laughs> um, uh, every time I s- just tread into the medical field, I can feel my wife cringing over there. I remember one time years ago, I talked about the medical possibility of spontaneous combustion and how I thought that was actually a reality. And I thought that that's actually the way that I want to die when I'm in my late 70s, early 80s, mid-90s. I want to be at the pulpit at Cross Point preaching mid-sermon and spontaneously combust, which I actually thought was a medical possibility. And on the way home, Jennifer said, hey, uh, if you, if, you, if you have any more medical analogies you want to make, maybe run that by me because th- <laughs> that can't happen. <laughs> um, so is it, is it, can you wipe, by, I mean, apparently, sometimes you, okay, let, well, let's just go with it. So let's just say that there was this sort of syndrome where what's supposed to be protecting you is actually attacking your body, right? And so th- that's what happens when, when truth speaking isn't prevalent in, in a body, right? 
I mean, we have enough disease to ward off as it is. And so, so we need, like, like, truth is like the white blood cells of the, of the church that, that shed light on and bring health to the falsehood of the culture. Verse 26, he goes on and he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. I, I think commentators, as I read and as I was preparing this week, um, oftentimes have, have, have sort of referred to the distinction between uh, unrighteous anger and righteous anger. Um, a lot of them would bring that up as I read this week. And I think there's probably something to that because, because in, in this same chapter in Ephesians 4, just a few verses up, he says that we should, we should get rid of anger. And then a few verses down, he says that we should put away all anger. But in verse 26, it seems like there's sort of this, there's this sense that you, you, you can be angry, but it shouldn't develop into sin. So I think that probably leads us to a, a probably a decent thought that maybe there is a, a distinction between righteous anger and sinful anger. And I think probably righteous anger maybe is a sort of sense that, that God's law or God's way or God's name or God's purposes are being um, uh, you know, uh, uh, combated against or spoken ill of, and that sort of should arouse a, a sort of righteous anger in us, contrasted with a sort of self-centered sort of anger. And, and I think, honestly, we need to realize, if we're going to make that distinction, that there's maybe a certain sort of anger that's not sinful, I think we need to make the distinction that most of us are prone uh, to, uh, to an anger that a- actually isn't righteous. And I think what this verse is telling us is that in the event that we are, that God just sort of gives us this, this sense that we want to rise up for the sake of his cause and for the sake of the gospel, that there's legitimacy in that. But, but there should be this sense that we, we quickly are defending God and his purposes or the purpose of those that are outcast or downtrodden, not ourselves. And I, I have to ask myself this question because most of my anger is unrighteous. Quite honestly, most of my anger is, 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 um, is sort of self-centered. I have to ask myself, what's really going on in my, in my unrighteous anger? I, I think in that moment, uh, what I'm most concerned about is not, not necessarily the cause of the helpless or the widow or the orphan or the downtrodden or God's name amongst his people, but most of the time, I, I think what's at stake there when my unrighteous anger re- re- rears its ugly head is, is, is my position, my status, my identity is threatened, um, my desires in that moment. And, and really, I think that's what verse 27 is about when he says, don't, don't let this anger slip into sin. And then that gives an opportunity to the devil. Because what happens when, when I leave that door open for, for really Brad's flesh to just sort of be prevalent there? Is, it, is this just an opportunity for everything to be about me? And that's the opportunity for, for the enemy to come in. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't need to jump out from behind a bush with a, with a pitchfork with, with horns, you know, in some sort of obvious demonstration of satanic evil. He wins if I can reduce a situation down to me. And if I can make an offense or some sort of disagreement about me. And, and so Paul, Paul, again, in the context of a local group of people living together as a Christ-centered community, 
He says, be angry, but don't sin. And, and have a time expiration on that anger. Don't let, your, don't let the sun go down on it, and don't give the devil an opportunity. He continues in verse 28. Just jumping from one thing to the next. It almost reads like New Testament Proverbs here. He says in verse 28, again, just examples that the Holy Spirit is bringing to his mind. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that they may have so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I think, I think there's le- obviously lever- layers of application here. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you have, are, are, are stealing stuff right now. I don't know. I mean, if, if, if so, stop. I mean, it's illegal. Uh, it's also not a good witness of Christ. Uh, I mean, maybe some of you are. I mean, I, I actually did have a little business. Uh, it's been a long time since I've told this story, but um, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but the Air caps on a car, like, you know, on your tire, those air caps, those fit on a bicycle. It's the same little air spigot on a, on a tire on a car and a tire on a bike. And so, some of those air caps are metal. And um, when I was in elementary school in El Centro, California, there was a market for metal air caps on your, on your bike. And I was happy to be a supplier for that market. And I, I would... I had a little business. Me and the next door neighbor, we would steal all the metal air caps off all the nice cars. And I mean, just a little Pinto, you don't have to, just plastic stuff. But you get a nice car, it's, yeah, you, you get some metal air caps there. And, um, and just one little quick story here. Dick Vermeil, if you guys uh, remember him, that are over the age of 30, he was the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles. And he had just coached the Philadelphia Eagles to the Super Bowl. And he was somehow childhood friends with somebody that lived three houses down from us. And, I mean, we didn't live in the type of neighborhood that Dick Vermeil would come to ordinarily. But anyway, we got word, uh, my little crime network here, we got word that <laughs> Dick Vermeil was coming to dinner at the Colas's house. And um, sure enough, he came. And he, was, he must have rented a nice car because I swiped those things off of his car <laughs> and sold them the next day at De- Desert Gardens Elementary for a markup. Um, so my point is, is maybe some of you are stealing stuff. <laughs> but, but here's the deal. Re- really what's, I shouldn't have brought that up because that's all you'll remember about this sermon. H- here's the deal. W- there's something deeper than this. I mean, Paul is saying, look, don't, like, don't have your heart sort of to be the type of heart that always looks for shortcuts or is lazy at work or fudges on this or that because what we do when we do that is we're, we're really robbing from each other whether that is our employer or or some brother or sister that we're trying to serve and, and I think that what's underneath verse 28 is actually something see see this is how you have to when you really read the the scriptures with with gospel-centered kingdom-centered lenses because you can look at that and you can just see that as a sort of law like don't steal don't steal and you can stop there and and you can scurry on your way and just sort of, okay, I'm not stealing. I didn't do that so I can check that. But there's something much deeper and much more pervasive that's going on in here. He's saying, don't steal, but rather let him labor. And then look at the last part of verse 28. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So what's, what's undergirding this sentence is not don't do this, do this. It, it is really a revolutionary look at wealth and possessions, isn't it? It's saying, be honest, don't steal, because that's a much better picture of Christ to an onlooking world. But even deeper than that, 
accumulate wealth and be honest in your labor so that you might be able to give away more. So do you see when we look and we stare at this sentence, the gospel-infused community that is, that is just pouring out of that sentence, don't do this, do this, so that you can be a more pervasively radical expression of Christ's generosity in the world. That's, that's, that's what I think is going on in verse 28. There's such a gospel proclamation in there. Not just for the thief, but for the person who's never stole and has accumulated much through honest effort, that the heart of that would be that we would be able to be radically generous. And what we're doing when we're generous and when our hands are open, we're shouting to the world that Jesus is enough for me. This stuff doesn't matter. Jesus is enough for me. Let's keep going. Verse 29. Let no, now he goes from the hands to... Uh, again, back to speech. Uh, just kind of going back and forth, head, hands, heart, just uh, kind of hitting things all over the map here. He says in verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. He tells us to put off corrupting talk and put on talk that is good for building up so that we might be a sort of means of grace to those who are here. This, again, is one that I think we need to do a little bit of work on. Most of us don't think of ourselves as people that speak in a corrupting way, do we? I mean, that's like, we, 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 that's like far away. That's like, you know, rebellious speech. You know, that's, I, don't, I don't talk like that. But, but, but I think when we look a little bit, when I look a little bit more, you know, intently at my speech, I think about all of just the subtle ways that I am so prone to cast doubt on another person or situation for my own good. You know, you hear about something that somebody else has done that's maybe a good thing that somebody else is sort of commending. And there's sort of all these sort of objections that write, yeah, but, you know, I mean, have you ever been around their kids? <laughs> Come on. You know, oh, yeah, but, and it's just sort of, it's sort of self-centered talk where we sort of subtly sort of corrupt the situation so that we might feel a little bit better about ourselves. At least there's a million other applications to this, but this is kind of the way it works out in my life. And, and what that does is it just kind of creates distance. It sort of tears us apart, and it's terrible for a community. And what Paul is saying here is that, is that there's a way to speak in the context of God's people and really in every aspect of life, whether you're in or out of the church, it is good for building up. And then God uses that speech as a means of grace for those that are listening to you. Listen to this. Let me just go to James chapter 3. Stay where you are, but let me just read from you some words from James. Jesus' half-brother who wrote the early, he was the early church leader and wrote this little letter that we know of as James. He says in James 3, verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile, and sea creature can be tamed and 
has been tamed by mankind, but, to, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Well, that's convicting, isn't it? That's convicting. And Paul is, is saying here, as James said, that this tongue has incredible power to build up, to make much of Jesus, to make much of what he is doing in a community, to make much of his redemptive work in the world. And it also has great power to corrupt and disease and pollute and cause distance and insecurity. And he admonishes us to have tongues that are filled with grace. Let's keep going. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So just kind of out of the blue, he just kind of comes up with this phrase here. It seems like like it's not connected to the rest. It's not a sort of admonition to put something off and to put something on. But really, it's sort of the grounds of motivation it's not just negative. If we, if verse 27, remember when we looked at and he says, you know, be angry, don't sin, don't let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. He counterbalances the motivation, not just being merely negative. Don't do this so that something bad doesn't happen in your life. But then in verse 30, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. There's something bigger here than just, than just the devil having foothold in your community. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And even here, just as we've seen all throughout Ephesians, we see laced into Paul's thought the idea of a triune God who is working for us. So you have the Father who chooses us and sets his love on us. And we have the Son who accomplishes our salvation by his work alone on the cross. And then you have the Holy Spirit who is with us, who seals us for the day of redemption. And if we're weak in our daily lives, as we all are at various times, just meditating on the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working on our behalf should just cause confidence and steel in our spines as Christians. And he says, don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Because you were sealed. He set his mark on us for the day of redemption. He continues on in verse 31. 32, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so in verse 31 and 32, it's almost sort of a crescendo of, of this thought here. He's talked about a couple specific actions, speech and maybe some hands, don't steal, But now he just whittles down to the deepest issue of our heart. And he says, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Remember, we can do this. We can put this off in Christ along with all malice. And put this on, put on kindness and a sort of tender heart. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And then he continues on with this thinking, this section here in verse chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2, and he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. I think this is one of the only places in the Scriptures we're actually called to imitate God. Sometimes Paul will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And in one sense, he, he, in one instance, he calls a church to imitate another church because of maybe their generosity or their faith. 
But in this letter here, in Ephesians 5, he's asking us, I mean, come on, if we don't look at this through the lens of the gospel and how we can do this in Christ, do you see how incredibly discouraging this can be? Imitate God? How can we do this? I mean, how? Imitate God? Friends, if this is just a self, if the Bible is a sort of self-help manual, then then when we come across verses like that, what do we do with them? We fail. It's impossible to do that. But when you read the Bible not as a self-help manual, and when you read it as the gospel-infused, life-giving work of Jesus on the cross who takes dead people who cannot live for him. In fact, Romans says that they are unable to follow God and he gives them life because of his mercy and his grace and his sovereign goodness and then brings them to life in Christ, not just forgiving their sins, but giving them the righteousness of Christ, filling them with his Holy Spirit and now setting them in community so that together they might grow in increasing measure together, empowered by the Spirit, with Christ's righteousness, with his word, and each other to help each other along this way, then this becomes possible, not because of our sort of own strength, but because of the gospel. So do you see how if you just parachute in on that, and you just say, oh, well, be an imitator of God, you can just throw up your hands and walk away and just, and just despair. Do you see how morality causes despair? But the gospel of grace rises up in us in community and we say, no, no, we, the scriptures call us to this and, and we can do this in Christ. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. More on verse 2 in just a second, but let me just end with three thoughts on this section at the end of chapter 4, first two verses of chapter 5. Three thoughts, very quickly. Number one, we are all prone to self-justification, aren't we? Aren't we? I mean, even reading through a list like this, I'm, I tend to think most instinctively about the things that I seem to do well, those stand out in my mind, and the things that maybe some people in my life don't do so well at, I think of that. This, matter of fact, at any time in the last couple of weeks, has there been this thought that runs through me, oh, I wish so-and-so was here? Or that happens to me all the time. Like, oh, I wish. Actually, I don't ever think that in the middle of my prayer. That would be kind of silly. Like I'm preaching most of the time. But sometimes when I'm hearing preach, I'm like, oh, somebody, they need to hear this. Right? <laughs> don't you have that thought, you know? They need to hear this. We're all prone to self-justification. Do you, do you know your blind spots? And do you know that God's cure for self-justification is a sort of truth-speaking community? That's why, that's why community groups are so important. That's why being part of a local church, being connected to it, being vitally connected to it, not just sort of attending on Sunday morning, but really being known, being plugged in, having the tentacles of that community sort of all around you for the sake of your good, to have the white blood cells of Christian community fighting for you, pushing out the disease of this corrupted world giving you sight, realizing that none of us have 20-20 spiritual vision. We're all prone to self-justification. Two, I think this passage should help us and reiterate the point that we should be relentless with our own sin 
and long-suffering with others. We should be relentless with our own sin and patient and long-suffering with others. This is what Paul writes to another church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So when I look at my own sin, I want to be ruthless with it. And I want brothers and sisters around me who will speak truth, who won't be easy on me, but will engage me with a sort of broken-hearted boldness. And what I mean by that is a, uh, they love me enough to confront me when I'm blind in sin. But I want to be ruthless with my own sin. And when I engage other people in my, my faith family, I, I want to be long-suffering and patient with them and their sin. With, again, that grace-saturated, gospel-infused, broken-hearted boldness where we care enough about one another to, to think about these scriptures and to, to speak them into each other's life so that we might together be a more clear picture of the gospel. And thirdly and finally, Jesus is not merely our example for how to live, but he is the means by which we live. This is the key to seeing the gospel in this text. See where it says in, in verse 1 there of chapter 5, be imitators of God? I mean, that's impossible. But we can do that because of what verse 2 says. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So friends, this is the gospel. And listen, if you haven't followed me at all, tune into this right now, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. The message of Christianity is not do better. The message of Christianity is not clean up your life. The message of Christianity is we have all rebelled. We have all fallen short. We have all, we, we, and, and that has rendered us completely unable to please God and reconcile ourselves with him. And what God does in Christ is he comes as a man in the flesh and he lives a perfect life that all of us have fallen short of. Where we disobeyed, he obeys perfectly and he stores up righteousness. He lays down his life on the cross absorbing the Father's holiness and wrath and justice for our sin, extinguishing the punishment for sin, for all those that will turn and trust in him. And he rises again in victory over that sin and death and consequence. And he now commands all people everywhere to repent. And when we repent, which means to turn from self-trust and turn from sin and turn in faith towards Jesus, what now happens is we are alive in Christ. And now we have, as I've mentioned, his Holy Spirit. We have his scripture. We have his righteousness to now in a progressive way, live up to who we have already been made, which is right in Christ. And when we see that, the Christian life becomes possible because of what God has done in Christ. If we don't see that, 
what we will do is we will scurry in sort of self-centered efforts to make ourselves right with God. And some of us, because we're just maybe strong or capable or maybe a little bit more intelligent or a little bit stronger, we might be able to stay on that track for a while, but it will exhaust us and we will eventually go kaput. Or maybe we're so strong that we can stay on that track all of our lives thinking that we are right with God because we were better than the next guy. And friends, that's not the gospel. What Paul says here is imitate God and look at Jesus not because he's an example of how to live, and he is that. Don't get me wrong, he is that. But now you can live like Jesus has lived because of the fact that he gave himself up for you, extinguishing God's wrath and now giving you his character, which now makes us a new creation in Christ that then lives in community with a bunch of other pardoned rebels who are trying to figure this out, who sort of walk in this gracious, humble, fierce, protective way towards one another. And then what happens is a little group of people do that. They become a sort of light in a community, and they become a clearer representation of who Jesus is. And here's what God does when a gospel-centered community, a church starts to think about this and live like this and just really get down and nitty and gritty is they become a sort of beautiful picture that becomes irresistible. It's just too good for people to turn away from and they look at it, man, and they're drawn to it by God's grace and they want it because it's really the only thing healthy in the world. And God uses even how we live together as a local church as a sort of means of evangelism. In fact, friends, I think that the life of a local church is God's primary means of evangelism. It doesn't mean that we don't go out and preach the gospel. It doesn't mean that we don't have individual witnessing. Of course, we do all those things. But the primary way that God wants to display his goodness and his all-sufficient nature to the world is through how we wrestle with these verses like this one and become a sort of grace-filled, joy-centered, Christ-saturated, humble group of people who are fierce in our pursuit of all that God has for us, who speak truth to each other, who work hard for one another, who give away radically our lives to one another, eager, eager for newcomers to come in the community so that we collectively might be a display of his gospel. And friends, I think all of that starts with realizing that Christianity is not merely a way to live up to but it's a man, the man Christ Jesus, who when we turn and trust in him, gives us life and becomes not only the example, but he becomes the means by which we live that way. And, and then we live together and God uses <laughs> a dusty little ragtag group of people for his glory. We, matter of fact, we get together every every. Sunday morning to pray in my office before the service, and Reynolds usually prays for us, and he just prayed. He says, he just kind of looked around the room, and we were all kind of sitting there with, you know, just little ragtag crumbs on our lips from donuts, and, you know, we didn't know which way was up, and I'm tucking in my shirt, and we're getting, you know, all this kind of stuff, and he says, Lord, you use yahoos like us, man. You use ordinary people. That's what he does. He takes a group of ordinary people whose life has been filled with sin and foolishness, self-centeredness, and he saves them, and he knits them together, 
They're not particularly gifted. They're not particularly cute. They're not particularly talented. Oh, there might be a few in there who got a few this or that. But those are the outliers. Most of us are train wrecks. In fact, all of us are train wrecks. And he puts them together. And, and he, he calls them to do life in this way. And he gives them his own son to be the, the means by which they can live that life as they trust in him. And then slowly but surely over the course of time, beautiful things start to happen. Beautiful things start to happen. People who were insecure start to lay down their guard. Young men who looked at women as only objects to be enjoyed for their selfish pleasure start to serve young ladies and seeing them as sisters in Christ and start to become young men to be the type of young men that women can marry. Couples that are on the, just at each other's throats start to turn towards each other to see their marriage as not just something for them but something that God has given even in their struggle to be a sort of example of God's enduring grace. People who have been involved in all manner of sin that they would be mortified to open up in a group, they start to realize that God is for them and not against them and that even through their life, he can bring redemption and he can shine his glory even through their past. People that didn't like to be around certain ethnic groups start to die to that because they realize the gospel penetrates that. It starts to transform the way we do life and what it becomes is a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. And friends, there is nothing more satisfying than living that way. Nothing, 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 nothing more satisfying than being in a community it grabs a hold of that and wants to live that way. There's nothing between you and that if you're not a Christian except your hard heart. You see, your, your sin doesn't stand between you and God because his work on the cross, he, he, can, he can atone for that. You, you don't think that what you've done is sort of the one thing that won't make, you know, you're worse than it really. No, there's nothing between you and this, except your own hard heart. Turn to Christ right now, friend. Christian, are you on the outskirts of community? Oh, c come on. Come on in. And let's live this way for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we conclude looking at this passage, would you help us? Lord, there's people in this room who, ah, just because of the way we are and our culture has misunderstood the gospel and um, maybe, maybe they've sort of boiled it down to some sort of moral code that they need to live this way or that way. I don't think my explanation today has been particularly good or persuasive, but I know that when you, when you intend to save a person, you... You don't, need, you don't need a good explanation. You're the creator of all. And you can, you delight, you delight in bringing dead hearts alive. God, would you do that for somebody here today? Would you let them see that 
It's not a matter of them living better or doing right. It's a matter of trusting in Jesus alone. And therein, they can now live the way you've called them to live and be your child. For a friend in here that has never truly trusted in Jesus, maybe they've trusted in morality or self-righteousness, or maybe they realize they're not a Christian today, would you, would you let them know that you delight in justifying the ungodly, which is all of us at some point in our lives. And Lord, for my friends that are in this room that are already Christians and they've made the mistake of reducing down the Bible and scriptures and the Christian life to a sort of individualistic pursuit. Occasionally you come together for a pep rally maybe once a week, but it's just kind of about me and my personal growth. Lord, would you broaden their horizons? Would you let them see that you've given us each other to be a sort of corporate display of your love. Would you do that, friend? Father, would you do that for my friend that might be kind of deciding to live life on their own? And Father, finally, would you help this church just be a, a slow, methodical, plotting, grace-driven group of former pardoned rebels who slowly but surely are becoming more and more like you so that you can use us for something beautiful in our time, the display of your name. Lord, would you do this for your glory and our joy? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.